self-inflicted wounds. You're listening to the news on RTHK. The weak global economy. The volatility in the upswings and the moods. Sort of a deflationary phenomenon again. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotrahora. The ruble tumbles despite Russia's massive hike in interest rates. Stocks sink as rallies are reversed and two local governments in China have pulled support for bond sales by their financing vehicles, all within the space of a week. Today on Money for Nothing, we'll look at how tighter credit conditions are hurting real estate developers and helping create a buyer's market in China. John Saunders of BlackRock Real Estate joins us to discuss where he sees value emerging. Then Michael Stanhope of Hubbis talks about the challenges of providing training to the wealth management industry. All that after a roundup of the markets with Dickie Wong of Kingston Financial. Stuart Altcroft of City Investor Services is guest host this morning. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Renita. You all set for the holidays? I am, I am, and I uh, can't wait. I guess you're off too soon, aren't you? I am, but, you know, we've got this show to do. You've got to get this show <laughs> off the road. <laughs> all right, let's look at today's top stories. Uh, U.S. stocks fell in a whirlwind day yesterday that saw two rallies vanish. The S&P reached a seven-week low as Russia's 1998 experiment uh, failed to, uh, as Russia's uh, interest rate hike, the highest since 1998, failed to arrest the ruble slide. The Dow Jones fell 0.7% to close at 17,068. It had been up as much as 246 points at midday. That's before turning lower in the afternoon. The S&P 500 fell 0.9% to close at 1,972, and the Nasdaq lost 1.2% to close at 4,547. Well, Russia's dramatic interest rate hike yesterday hasn't rescued the ruble. Uh, it has fallen sharply again for the second day, repeatedly hitting record lows against the dollar. Here's AP correspondent Vladimir Isenchukov. The central bank moved quickly to try to stem the ruble's collapse by raising its main interest rate to 17% from 10.5% in just one abrupt move overnight. But the measure only had a short-time effect on trading on Russia's currency exchanges, and then the ruble collapse continued. The ruble has been hit hard by falling oil prices and Western sanctions against Russia. Now, what to make of this? Here's a rapid round of, uh, I should say, a round of rapid-fire opinion. Council on Foreign Relations President Richard Haas. We would have thought raising interest rates by 6.5% might have been the kind of strong signal that would reassure the markets. That's got to be a scary moment when you do something that big and dramatic and it doesn't (laughs) stick. IHS Vice Chairman Daniel Jurgen. It's only two weeks ago that uh, President Putin said, you know, Russia's prepared for cataclysmic scenarios, but watching what's happening with the ruble between oil prices and this new uh, sanctions bill that passed both houses, that it looks like Russia's not prepared for cataclysmic scenarios. Georgetown University Professor Angela Stent. 
one of the ways that they could do something maybe to stop this uh, implosion, if you like, is to change their, their stance, for instance, on issues like Ukraine, to stop buzzing airplanes, you know, in the Baltic. And Eurasia Group President Ian Bremer. Mr. Putin uh, is still well over 80% approval. So he's in a position where maintaining sanctions and fi- having scapegoats is actually not only useful for him, but it may be seen as critical in this very dangerous period. So right now, investors can make 17% on their money. Is it time to send it to Russia? Howard Marks, who is the co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital, says not. He's actually concerned there about Russia's rule of law. He says that even though you can send money uh, and, and get that high interest rate, you never know what Putin is going to do next. Now, some banks have more exposure to the energy sector than others. Highest on the list is Citibank with about 10.5% commercial credit exposure commitments. Other banks are more in the range of 5 to 7%. Should we be concerned? Here's David Hilder, Drexel, Hamilton, uh, Drexel Hamilton's senior equity research analyst. Citi has a lot more exposure to emerging markets generally mm-hmm. than any of the other U.S. banks. Um, I don't honestly I don't think any of the energy exposure is going to be a particular problem. City is the most global bank from the United States. Uh it has been a multinational global bank to energy companies for a long time. So their credit exposure is at a very high level in in credit quality. In their portfolio overall about 80% of their outstandings are investment grade rated. So, again, they're in general not lending to the last company to figure out uh, that fracking exists and, and to go buy mineral rights in North Dakota. So what happens then if you take energy exposure, emerging markets exposure and Russian ex- exposure and put all of that together? Is that enough to get all worked up about? It isn't for me. Uh-huh. City is actually my top-rated stock. I have more upside to my city target price than any other bank. I do think that City is going to get permission to raise its dividend next March and buy back a lot more stock. Uh, credit quality for the banks overall has been very, very good on the commercial side. Uh, I think they can certainly handle this. Uh, the Russian exposure is de minimis. I mean, City's total exposure to Russia is less than one-half of one percent of its total assets. All right, let's bring in Dickie Wong, who is the Executive Director of Research at the Kingston Financial Group. Good morning, Dickie. Morning. So, Dickie, uh, lots of concern out there about the ruble, the falling ruble, and, um, you know, what analysts are thinking about exposure to Russia. I'd like to ask you, how much of a concern is this outside of Russia and specifically for investors in this part of the world? Well, if you talk about Hong Kong alone, I don't think there is a much, so much concern. But if you're talking about Europe, the country, and also everywhere in the, in the, in U.S. and even um, other developed countries, I think this is some kind of a disaster to them. Uh, as you, and we all know, I don't think this is a very good idea to hike the interest rate like this. As you can see, it's, it's currency ruble, and also the stock market just simply meltdowns. So I think this is a big concern for for Putin right now. um, I was going to ask, investors in Hong Kong, do they not have exposure to Russia? Not so much exposure to uh, Russia because, um, as we all know, um, they export um, energy to Europe. But um, in the past couple of weeks, um, oil price has been down so significantly, and this may give 
further pressure to energy prices um, in the future. But as we all know, those three major um, state-owned oil companies' share price they have been down so significantly in the two, uh, past two weeks already. So I will not see, um, I mean, the ruble and also the, the Russian stock market will further um, give, give further pressure to those state-owned oil companies. But I still see that this is definitely a concern for those developed countries because um, some may just rise interest rate by so much in overnight and give heartbeat to the stock market and also to its currency. So I think the money will pour into those developed countries like the U.S. and even China because, um, as we all know, China now the stock market after the recent run-up is still trading at the lowest level. I mean, the lowest compared to other countries, but only um, eight times PE. I mean, talking about the A50 index. Uh, definitely, if you talk about the Shanghai Composite Index, it's trading at a much higher valuation, like 10.6 times, which is even higher than uh, HSI. That's the fact. Okay, Stuart, uh, what do you make of this notion that one of the analysts uh, uh, mentioned earlier about taking your money and uh, getting a 17% return on it in Russia? Well, this is just going to be very speculative. Of course, with the currency falling as fast as it is, um, 17% means nothing if the currency falls another 17% in value. You've seen it halve in value over the last six months, and uh, there's probably a bit more to go. Uh, Bear in mind as well that many of the high-yielding bond funds over the last year or two have had exposure to Russian debt, and and therefore they will probably be hurting a little bit right now. I think there are some reports out there uh, of of one very large bond fund manager that's seen a massive uh, exposure to Russia just more or less wiped out. So I would would regard any, any move by investors to buy into Russian debt at... Or, or Russian uh, deposits at 17.5% is really a very risky move right now. So uh, those who are already invested in these bond funds, you know, as, as, as you say, those bond funds, are they in danger of defaulting? No, they're not in danger of defaulting. I think what you'll see is the, is, is the value of them will have uh, fallen a little bit. But, but it depends on what proportion of exposure they have to Russia. Most of them will probably have a fairly small one. But those that are uh, invested into emerging market bonds, then they, they will have a much larger exposure and that will be the risk. Dickie, what do you make of that? Well, definitely 17.5% is so attractive, but in fact, its currency just plunged 18% alone in the past two days uh, compared to the dollar. So um, I think if you're now investing in uh, Russia, it's, uh, uh, it's definitely uh, something a very high risk and high return back um, compared to um, just two, three days before. So I won't make this move. And I, and I will put my money in the um, U.S. because I can see a very clear picture. And I will put my money into the China Asia because I can see more um, individuals um, pouring money now into um, the stock market. So I won't make the bet in Russia at this moment. Okay, Dickie, so um, certainly you say that the picture is very clear in the U.S. and agreed. Um, and then you also talk about China. But uh, 
China, you know, the economy is cooling. You know, the world economies, in fact, you know, the two biggest tectonic plates appear to be shifting with the U.S. accelerating and China cooling. And then yesterday we um, received the uh, China PMI number by HB, HSBC and Market, which also fell to 49.5 from 50 in November. And as you know, a reading below 50 indicates contraction. So should we be concerned there? Well, that is a very good question indeed. Um, in fact, what the PBLC did just two, three uh, weeks ago, because they um, did cut the interest, interest rate um, by unparalleled um, just two weeks ago. So they, they are aware of this matter. And um, everyone, in, in, including industries overseas and also in China, they are, they are aware that um, the Chinese economy is slowing down. There's no question asked. So what will they do in the next step? That's the question. And I will believe that the PBOC may have been on a cut of the interest rate as soon as just like um, early next year. And um, they will also have a cut on the reserve requirement ratio as well. So I think the policy uh, will give another boost to the, um, I mean, the Chinese stock market. But you are right. Um, the Chinese Asia market now is not trading at a very uh, super attractive level now because as i said um now the shanghai composite index is already trading at um 10.8 um times for pe whereas like just a couple of months ago only at at seven times but now we can put our bets into like a50 because a50 is trading at much lower valuation as i said and also a share a share is the most attractive um i mean um um, market non-market indexes um compared um, to like HSI, even uh, S&P 500, and also the Shanghai Composite Index. So, eight shares is now only trading at like 7.5 percent for PE. So, I think um, index fund like um, index fund um, trades eight shares is also attractive. All right, Dicky, thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning. That is Dicky Wong, and he is the executive director of research at the Kingston Financial Group. A uh, quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is down um, 73 points, 73 points to 16,681. Australia's ASX up 24 points to 5,156. And Seoul's Kospi also up nine points to 1,913. In currencies, one euro currently buys you 1.25 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 116 yen and the pound sterling is currently valued at 12 Hong Kong dollars and 20 cents. Brent crude oil is at 60 dollars and 1 cent and gold is at 1,193 dollars and 90 cents. Well, China's economic slowdown and the government's effort to rein in property prices have put the squeeze on mainland property developers. Some are in need of new equity partners to survive the downturn. But is piling in such a good idea? Joining us to discuss this is John Saunders, head of APAC for BlackRock Real Estate. Good morning, John. Good morning to you. So, John, where are you seeing signs of distress among developers in China? Yeah, look, uh, where we're seeing the problems, I think distress might be slightly too strong a word, but where we're seeing problems is where 
developers have uh, overexpanded um, and they're trying to effectively develop too many sites at the same time with a limited access to borrowing. Um, the issue you raised is, is a correct one. You know, with the slowdown in pre-sale consents, they've lost a big chunk of cash flow, which used to pay the interest on the debt burden. And the debt burden for some companies and some developers in China is really very high at the moment. So people with large amounts of sites and limited capital, that's where the problem is. We've had lots of reports, John, of um, empty buildings all over China, um, and yet still more going up. Uh, Isn't there a limit to how many empty buildings can be kept going? Yeah, I think there's two issues here. There's the the misallocation of capital, which still does go on in Asia Mm. generally, but also does go on in in China. And then there's the actual ability for developers to borrow and fund projects. In the first one, there is still misallocation of capital. I mean, we have a very um, successful shopping centre in Chengdu. That's a market which I think when we entered about four years ago was running at about 12 or 13% vacancy. It's now running at 18% vacancy, and yet the mall that we run has been 100% let since day one. So if you have the right product for the market, uh, you can still do well. But there is unfortunately a lot of misallocation of capital. So the old maxim, location, 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 always works, I think even in China? Yeah, even in China. I think it's partly location. Um, you know, if you're going to run a shopping centre, you better make sure there are plenty of people who live nearby who want, you know, have enough money to spend to buy good mm. goods, But uh, aren't, aren't some of the regional governments still spending money, even though the, the central government is, is in fact not in favour of that? Yes, no, they, they are. And in some cases, that's where some of the misallocation of, uh, of, of capital happens. Um, but for us, for what we do, you know, there are some projects which just aren't investable. But there are a lot of other projects where the, you know, the, the asset's good, but they need a little bit of help with uh, some equity. So, uh, John, with, uh, you know, th- this credit crunch, where does the equity actually come from? Uh, I think it comes from a number of areas. It comes from, uh, it, it comes from uh, foreign investors. It comes from potentially direct investors, and it comes from uh, potentially folk like ourselves. I mean, we run uh, equity funds. BlackRock runs um, around about uh, you know eight billion dollars uh, of uh, of equity as part of an overall four and a half trillion dollar business. So uh, some of it comes from private equity. And I think private equity at the moment has a very significant role to play in China over the next uh, 18 to 24 months. So the private equity investor, uh, uh, is, are they thinking, are they concerned about, you know, everything that we hear in the news about the slowdown in China or do they see this as an opportunity? I think it, it's, you know, generally speaking, it's an opportunity. Of course, there are some cities who are, that are doing better than others. There are some sectors and areas that are doing better than others. But it's quite interesting. What, what we're seeing at the operational level is the demand for high-quality office space, the demand for high-quality retail, and indeed the same uh, store sales spending within that retail is actually still very, very robust. So operationally, things are quite good. The issue is over credit. Um, and, you know, specifically the availability of debt for real estate. Okay, so which cities are we seeing actually do better? Well, the cities we tend to favor, we, you know, we, we always look for opportunities in Beijing and Shanghai, but we're also prepared to look at, uh, uh, you know, the, the second-tier cities as well. Of course, second-tier 
in a China context, you think of, say, somewhere like Chengdu, which we do favour as a second-tier city, but you know, that has 12 million people. So when you think of it in a Western sense as a second-tier city, it sounds quite amusing to make out that it sounds small when it has 12 million people. But So we do like the, the selectively some of the second-tier cities, places like Wuhan, um, places like Chengdu, um, to a degree Chongqing. So uh, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're selective, um, but we think there's quite a lot of opportunity out there at the moment. And um, would you say that sort of following the development of retail and office space, would there be a natural veer towards uh, the development of residential space as well in these cities? Yeah, I think if you look at one area that's the most oversupplied in China, it is residential. Um, and it can be the area where there's the most misallocation of capital in addition. Uh, we tend <coughs> to be a little wary of residential because um, politicians, and it's not just in China, <coughs> excuse me, it's globally, politicians have a nasty habit of changing the rules on you with residential, changing stamp duty, changing pre-sale consents, etc. But that said, um, you know, we're always looking for opportunities and sometimes residential can take the bulk of the pain in a, in a, in a downturn or a slowdown. So we believe there will be opportunities in, in residential as well. All right, John. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is John Saunders, and he, he is the head of Asia Pacific for BlackRock Real Estate. How are policies formulated? How should the government allocate its resources in the budget? Boost the economy. Meet housing needs. Care for the elderly. Or should we focus on education, health care, and the environment? Make your voice heard. Share your views on the Policy Address and Budget Consultation website at www.policyaddress.gov.hk or call our hotline 2810-3768. Christmas jams at the tunnel shop through hustle and bustle. Snow and lights make wonderland out this concrete jungle. There's miracles on 34th Street. On a train, get that lady with all them badges. The time is now 8.24 a.m. and the wealth management industry might appear to be glamorous from the outside, but uh, this too is, meets with its own set of challenges, training being one of them. Stuart, why is this? Well, of course, there are mandated requirements by um, the regulators for everybody in the securities business, the banking industry, the fund management industry, to have a minimum amount of training every year on, on many of the different matters that affect the industry. And, and therefore, uh, it's important that both internal and external trading, uh, training is, is provided. All right. Well, um, so talking about training, you know, special training courses and modules are developed, uh, you know, developed for the industry have to be the way forward. Now, this is according to Michael Stanhope, who is the founder and CEO of Hubis. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Thanks for joining us today on Money for Nothing. Uh, your company provides training, education and other services for private banking and wealth management. Um, typically, what kind of training is this? Um, I think generically there are three types of uh, training that would be important in private banking. So one is technical knowledge, so their ability to understand about fixed income or equities or property or different types of investments. Um, I suppose personal effectiveness would be another one. Um, time management, their ability just to manage themselves in what is ultimately now a very complicated and, um, and difficult environment. And uh, the third one would be social skills, their ability to interact with their clients and have a more useful and effective relationship with their clients. How big is the private banking industry in Asia, Michael? Is, is Hong Kong the largest? 
Well, the industry has grown and um, in, in a very sustainable way. So there's a large growth in wealth in most of the countries in the region, especially obviously in countries like China. Um, now, the uh, concept of Hong Kong um, as an international centre has obviously grown, as has Singapore. So I think Hong Kong and Singapore combined will be bigger than Switzerland, for example, now or quite soon. That'll be a surprise to some. It will be a surprise, yeah. The, um, but I think a lot of the growth, or most of the growth in the future, is going to come onshore. So if, obviously, you think about the growth in countries like China, that's going to continue, certainly for the rest of our careers. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the question, therefore, f- from a private banking or wealth management perspective, is how people get their arms around that opportunity and, and make the most of, um, you know, servicing those clients as that wealth grows. So who, who is a typical client, for example, of a private bank? Well, it could be quite diverse, and it depends on your definition of private banking. So obviously in places like Switzerland, where private banking has existed for many hundreds of years, um, it might be a slightly different concept than it would be in China, for example. But I mean, everything from very ultra-high net worth clients, which have a lot of demands and uh, connectivity around lending and their companies, um, all the way down to you know high net worth clients who might just have a few million US dollars um, to invest. In Asia, we're not just talking, though, about people who live in Hong Kong or Singapore, but we're talking about people coming to the region as well, aren't we? Uh, Some from the mainland. Sure. So I think, you know, um, mainland Chinese have, have challenges that they possibly didn't have in the past. One might be governance or structure or transferring wealth to the next generation. And obviously they have a lot of assets and, and things outside of China, which they haven't had traditionally in the past. Okay, Michael, uh, one uh, last question before we wrap up the segment. Just in terms of training and, you know, the importance of it, can you give us an example of something that might go wrong, uh, you know, due to lack of training or lack of proper knowledge um, from the staff on the wealth management end? Sure. I mean, um, theoretically and in the real world, you know, there's now an element of criminality strapped around certain things related to tax. So in the past, a private banker was not necessarily liable for what their clients did or did not do, whereas today the reality of the situation is very much different. So, you know, they've got a responsibility to make sure they understand what their clients can and can't do, and ultimately training plays a very important part in that. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning with very interesting stuff. That is Michael Stanhope. He is the founder and chief executive officer of Hubbis. A look at the numbers before we wrap up the show. The Nikkei is up 40 points to 16,795. Australia's ASX index up 24 points to 5,155. And Sol's Kospi up just 1 point to 1,905. Stuart, here we are at the end of the show. Uh, This is going to be your last money for nothing for the next couple of weeks, as well as mine, as we are both off on holiday. But not together. Not together, We should just dismiss that rumour. Okay, fine. Well, that rumour has been dismissed on air. Good. good. <laughs> um, so, uh, listeners, we will leave you in the good hands of Richard Harris, who will be anchoring the show these next two weeks while we are away, along with a cohort of co-hosts one for each day of the week um so enjoy that as we go into the end of the year any uh, parting words Stuart? Uh, keep an eye on the oil price keep an eye on russia and uh, 
and, and it's a good time to probably just uh, take a, a time to relax. I'm going to relax, so I hope all the listeners do. And just uh, wish everybody a very happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Happy nesting. Christmas jams at the tunnel shop to hustle and bustle. Let's take a quick look at the weather forecast before we depart. Today will be fine and very dry, cold in the morning with a maximum temperature of around 16 degrees during the day. The relative humidity right now is 27% and the temperature is 11 degrees Celsius. Cold. This is Renita Malhotra Hora wrapping up for Money for Nothing. And now it's time for the half-hour news summary with Todd Harding. Funerals have taken place in the Pakistani city of Peshawar for some of those who died in an attack carried out by Taliban militants on a school. At least 132 children died in the attack, along with nine staff members and the seven militants. The Pakistani Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif has announced three days of national mourning. The BBC's Shani Khalil reports from Peshawar. This is a city that is no stranger to military attacks and to militant attacks, but many here will tell you that this was on another level of terror. And questions also will be asked about what will the leadership do? What will the political leadership do? We've heard condemnations uh, from the president, from the prime minister, Nawaz Sharif, who's here. He'll be holding high-level meetings tomorrow. Uh, And also the army chief is here, all trying to come up with the question of what to do next in the face of the Taliban. A spokesman for the Pakistani Taliban said the attack on the military-run school was a response to anti-militant offensives in North Waziristan and the Khyber region. Meanwhile, the Afghan Taliban have criticised the Pakistani Taliban for mounting the attack. Here's the BBC's Mike Waldridge. The Afghan Taliban are currently stepping up their own attacks in Afghanistan and share roots with the Pakistani Taliban. They usually share the same ideology too. But the spokesman for the Afghan Taliban, Zabihullah Mujahid, said that they were sending their condolences to the families of the children killed in the Peshawar attack and shared their sadness.